Okay. <clears throat> Is that all right? Okay, everyone. This morning we're looking at Psalm 20. Um, this is the last psalm in the series that we're looking at. I think Adam is starting next week in Genesis. Good morning. Nice to see familiar faces. Um, it's quite a short psalm, and it's a good thing it is because Denise approached me this morning and told me, keep it quiet. Sorry, keep it quick. <laughs> <laughs> By chance, actually, I, I, I do have for me a rather quick one. So, yeah, that's good. God was watching over that. So Psalm 20, it's a royal psalm. It's a bit like the psalm that, that Russell preached on last week. It's about the king and how he's God's anointed. Um, it's a wonderful psalm which shows a lovely picture of the solidarity between people and their king and God as they seek the Lord's favor in a time of distress. David is attributed to writing to it. Um, we don't know what time he wrote it or what time in his life. So before we look at it, before we kind of pull it apart, let's pray. Father, we believe that the word that we're going to look at today is true. Um, it would be an utter waste of time if it wasn't. We believe that it was pinned by uh, someone who was inspired by you, David. Uh, with your very words, working along with David's intellect, uh, Father, we're so thankful for uh, these encouragements that we've had over the last number of weeks. And so, Father, encourage us again today um, as, we, uh, as we look at your word and examine it, Lord. Okay, so Psalm 20. Uh, we'll also be looking quickly at Psalm 33 and 35. So while you're back there, you might just keep your finger in the area of the, uh, of the Bible. Um, it looks like, reading verse 1, that it sets the scene. Verse 1 sets the scene. And it could be titled, A Prayer in Need. And there's a bit of a problem in Israel. There seems to be always a bit of a problem in Israel, isn't there, Mark? <laughs> Israel are in trouble again this week. We don't know what kind of trouble, but let's have a look at the first verse. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. What's going on? Well, most likely one of Israel's many enemies are rallying again to do battle with her. You see, in those days, Israel was a stench in the nostrils of all the neighbors that surrounded her. And in these battles, they had one aim, and that was to rid this planet of the nation of Israel. They wanted the end of Israel. And so it was a real battle of attrition as they tried to grind this small nation to nothing. So looking at that verse, you may think, Vastly outnumbered by enemies as she was, why would the people pray like this? Why would they speak to the king like this? May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect, protect you. You'd think they'd say something like, King, you're supposed to defend us in these times. Get the blacksmiths busy making weapons. Get the army council making plans. Get the army prepared and in shape. But no, they make a petition. They make prayer a priority. Why would this be? Well, if you look closely at these verses, you might get a clue. Can you see the clue there? Look how the word Lord is spelt. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Every time you see Lord spelt in caps, in your Bibles, it means that this refers to the covenant name Jehovah. 
Also notice another clue. God is also called the God of Jacob. In Exodus chapter 3, we read, when Moses was at the burning bush and he was saying, who should I say, who should I say uh, sent me or who's given me this message? God says, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and here we have it, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Again, referring to the covenant-making God. It's important for us to understand this. A very significant event happened many, many years before this psalm, and it sheds much light on how and why the people should pray for the king like so. We find that God made a covenant with Abraham. Now, a covenant is not a word that we use much in our speech today, is it? It basically just means promise. I mean, you could still use it if you want. Maybe some of the kids could bring it back, you know? I mean, if kids are working on a project in school, they could say something like this, I covenant to work on this project with you, simply meaning, I promise. You might get some odd looks if you said that to your mate in school, but you're not speaking untruths. I covenant to work with you on this project. But now, a covenant kind of is an agreement between two people where both have equal responsibilities. But God made an interesting covenant. He made an unconditional covenant. Okay, this is very, very different to one that you might meet with a friend or you might make with a friend. This meant that Abraham had no obligation to fulfill his side. And in this covenant, God was the promise maker, and more importantly, he's the promise keeper. And he made a promise to Abraham, and it was in four parts. The first part was a promise of land. The second promise was a promise of many descendants. Now, Abraham was old, and Sarah was old at the time, so that probably seemed impossible to him. The third promise was a promise of blessing on Abraham and on the entire world through him. This is where we come in. And the fourth part of the promise was a promise of curses and blessings on those who would curse or bless Abraham. This is where Psalm 20 comes in. So now the people in a mark of solidarity are appealing to their king, appealing to God on behalf of their king, and they're cashing in on this promise that God made to Abraham many, many years before. It's as almost the people are thinking, look, Lord, you've made a great covenant with Abraham. You've made promises to our forefathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're not around anymore, but your chosen king is God. Do something. Our enemies at the door, they want to take your land. They want to get rid of your people. Surely the curses and the blessings that you promised Abraham should kick in now, Lord. Lord, you're a promise keeper. Here we're in trouble. Come to our help now, Lord, for your name's sake. And so what follows in the next couple of verses, verse 2 to verse 4, is we have a string of blessings that the people seek for their king. Let's look at 2 to 4. The people say, on behalf of the king, may he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your sufferings and regard, sorry, may he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices, Salah. Salah is just a, a pause, either for meditation or for some musical purpose. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. So they call on God to send help from the sanctuary and from Zion. Kind of strange terms to us here today in Galway, isn't it? Calling to mind the sanctuary, calling to mind the tabernacle. 
Now, this was the tabernacle where God's presence lived in. This is where God himself lived in. It was the same tabernacle that Moses and the people during Exodus carried across the wilderness. And it gave them great comfort knowing that the presence of God, the presence of the very God was with them. Help from the sanctuary could mean in those days when Israel went into battle, they often had the, the, sanctuary, the, the uh, tabernacle up front, comforting them, giving them courage, and of course striking fear in their enemies. Maybe this is the sort of help from the sanctuary that the psalmist means. The commentators are not entirely sure. Verse 3 asks the people, they ask God to remember that the king has fulfilled his duties of sacrifice in temple worship. Now the king had a lot of... Um, had a lot of duties to do in regarding the temple as well on behalf of the people. And this was to make sure that no barrier existed between God and the king and the people. So once the king had fulfilled his duties, they knew that the door was open for blessings. Verse 5 could be are titled, Rejoicing in Anticipation. Verse 5 reads, May we shout for joy over your salvation, and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. How can they pray like this? I mean, the battle has not even begun. And nevertheless, the people are God. They're anticipating victory. Even being so bold as to lift up the banners of victory. You see, the people are not depending on their own resources. If they were depending on their own resources, they'd be quivering. They'd be shaking with fear. But they know that God is going to come to their defense. They know that God is going to come in deliverance. And it's on this basis and on the basis of the covenant that God made with Abraham, that they know that God will come good on this. Verses 6 to verses 8 could be called confidence in God's royal help. Verse 6 reads, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Notice now that the we has changed to I here. The commentators that I went through anyways were not sure why this was. They weren't sure who the I was referring to. Probably the king could be one of the Levite priests. Anyways, whoever it refers to seems to be just oozing with confidence that this is going to come about. Wouldn't it be great if we had this confidence in our lives when we met with overwhelming trials? Basically, trusting in God is what, what they're calling on here. Trusting in God means to be different from those who trust in Him. Pardon me. Trusting in God means to be different from those who trust in themselves. And so it is with this small nation, Israel. Because they trusted in God, they were different from the other nations in their belief, in their morality, in the way they spent their lives. God even told them, look, don't be like the other nations around you. Don't have big armies full of chariots and horses. I'm fighting your battles. This would be like telling an army today, well, look, you don't need all those smart weapons. You don't need those defense systems. Cut back on your aircraft. Cut back on the tank divisions and the military divisions and your, your footmen. I'm fighting your battle. This would take serious trust, wouldn't it? Like when you apply it in today's world, it just shows us what they went through back there again because horses and chariots were the leading edge of weaponry back there. I love when the Bible comments on another part of the Bible. Skip to, verse, or to chap, um, Psalm 33, verses 13 to 19. There's a wonderful piece there. 
Psalm 33. It speaks about this very thing. Verse 13 starts off, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the world. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. The final verse of this psalm, verse 9, is pretty similar to verse 1. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. It's almost like one commentator says that it's almost like they're saying, let what has been asked and promised truly become reality. How do we make a connection nowadays here in Galway or in this modern world with a psalm like Psalm 20? and us today. Because on the surface of it, you know, I can understand why some people maybe sitting in this room might think, what is an old Sam about a small nation long, long ago who were in a bit of a predicament and they're appealing to their king and blessing their king so that he might deliver them from some ancient battle? What has that got to do with us today? How can we relate to this today ourselves? Some might be thinking, well, there's no nation like Israel of old. No nation puts their trust in God, like Psalm 20 says, anymore. Nearly all nations are secular with their leaders and their people just trusting in themselves and one another. Well, the times may change, but God does not, does he not? Like God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he is still sovereign in this, in this world today. Last week, Russell preached on Psalm 2, and we saw God sitting up on his throne, laughing at all the futility of the people who rage against him. It was a great image. He's not worried on his throne. He's not going toing and froing, wringing his hands and fretting about how he's going to counter the next move of those who raise their fist at him and scoff him. We saw last week in Psalm 2, he's figuratively speaking, sitting. He's calm. Everything is in control. And God today has a people that still seek his face in prayer. He still has a people who lift up his name with the, he lifts up a banner with his name on it. And he still has a people who trust him. But these people today are not a particular nation like Israel was. These people are us. Remember the Apostle John in Revelation 7 when he had a vision of heaven and he was amazed. He said, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before him, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. God has a people today among the nations. They are a nation of believers. Paul says in Philippians, he said, our citizenship is in heaven. Abraham is in heaven today. And I often think about these things. We can, we can only imagine Abraham in heaven today marveling as he now fully understands how God has fulfilled all the promises that he made to him to multiply his offspring in a way that he could only have dreamed of. A nation of believers, men and women, 
after his own heart, called not out of some ancient part of Babylon, but oh, we're called out of sin. David is in heaven as well today. Think of David like Abraham. We can imagine him marveling when he remembers the true significance of the words of Nathan when Nathan came to him one day and said to David, imagine David hearing these words, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God may not have a king sitting on an earthly throne today, but there is a king in heaven who still intercedes for his people. He is both king and lamb. He's God anointed. He's our king, Jesus Christ. He's the everlasting king sitting on the everlasting throne. He has come through the line of David. He, like Abraham now, fully understands these promises. And now that he's in God's presence. I love these words of David. When he, when he, when he, when he contemplates on these, on these words that God has spoken to him. In 2 Samuel, he says, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? You see, our God is a God who keeps promises. He's the same God of old. And we can put our trust in him. And this is essentially, as Chris said earlier, what this psalm is about. It's about trusting in God, and we sang about it. Despite what the world thinks, trusting in God, for anyone here today who's wondering should they trust in God, trusting in God is the wisest decision you'll ever make in your life. I'm convinced of it. The king and the people we read about in verse 7b, they say that they have trust in the name of, in the, name of the Lord our God. Every blessing and petition that they make on the king's behalf is anchored in this trust. And the sacrifices offered by the king on the people's behalf are also anchored in this trust. That the promises of God that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be fulfilled. He is a God, and let me tell you this again, he is a God who comes good on his promises. Number says that God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. Think of that if you're thinking of trusting in God. He is not man that might have disappointed you or let you down. That he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And even though we live in Ireland thousands of years after these events, God is still the God who keeps his promise. We can count on that. One commentator says, and this is helpful, to trust in the name of Yahweh is to accept the character of God revealed in his name, to commit to relationship with Yahweh, and to accept the implications of that relationship. So as to accept the character of God revealed in his name, to commit to relationship with Yahweh, and to accept the implications of that relationship. Now time limits us, but we can take from this comment that God is a God of relationship. He's not a God like it's portrayed today in modern day world as someone who's aloof or distant or cold in some way. He's a God who delights in relationship with his people. Not that he needs us in any way, but because he's a God of love and mercy. You know, I was listening to a podcast here during the week of, of a, a former mafia guy in America who's now turned to the Lord. And it's amazing. He paints a, a really romantic picture initially when he was initiated into the family of how loyal they were all together. But then when he got very, very successful and he started bringing a lot of money in for the family, they suddenly realized he was a threat, that he might break off and form his own family. And he, went, he had to go on the run. 
And he was very lucky to escape with his life, and he's very lucky that he's still alive today. He has a prison ministry now. But it's funny, the one thing he said that he didn't have, he didn't really have with that family initially, was true and proper relationship. He thought he had a relationship with them. He thought they were all minding one another's backs. But when it came down to it, they weren't. And he said over and over again in that podcast, he was talking about, we're made for relationship. And he was dead right. It was the one thing that he lacked and he pined for ever since he was a young boy when his father was imprisoned. Relationship. And God is a God of relationship. If we're honest, the most important thing in our lives is relationships. We all strive and crave for it. He's a God, our God, who rolls up his sleeves with us when we're in trouble and who laughs with us when we have joyous times and happy times. Let me ask you a question. How do you relate to him? Have you sought a relationship with him at all? I pray that you have. For those who have a right relationship in this room with Christ at this time, Peter says in 1 Peter 4.2, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Do you pray that God will deepen your relationship with him daily? Do you pray that his passions would be your passions, that, that his heart would be your heart? It's a hard prayer to pray, I must say, isn't it? We still cling to things that we delight in in this world. Notice in verse 4, the psalmist sheds some light on this idea. He says, this is God talking to the king. He says, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Now, when I was studying for this psalm, I, I got a little bit uneasy when I read that that verse. May he grant you, the king, your heart's desires. Because a prayer pleading for the king for all his desires to be granted, I, I think of all the kings in the Old Testament. They weren't really good, most of them. I know that they probably wouldn't have prayed this prayer if they knew that, for example, when David was having his affair with Bathsheba, would they? That all your desires would be would be fulfilled and your plans be fulfilled? I don't think they'd pray that prayer then. What does that mean? And I think, to be honest with you, if all of us looks into our hearts, we'll see that if all our desires were given to us, we'd be in spiritual trouble, wouldn't we? I think these verses mean, or this verse means, behind the people's prayer was an understanding that desires and plans have to be grounded in a right relationship with God. So therefore, our good desires and our plans are also God's desires and plans, and they will be granted. And this is why the people could pray with such confidence. Now, we need to continually examine ourselves in prayer daily to see are we in the faith? Are our desires in line with God's desires? Because it's so easy for us to run off track. The world just, like a pinball game, it just kind of pushes us to and fro often. We have to keep on that track of examining ourselves in prayer daily in the morning and saying, Lord, commit my day to your passions and your heart and your desires, Lord. Help me to follow them. There's an interesting thing that I was reading years and years ago in the Bible, and we've all read it many, many times. I often wondered, how could God say that David had a heart after his own? I mean, David wasn't exactly perfect, was he? And this gives me great encouragement when I go through seasons where I can see that I fall far short of being perfect, where I fall far short of fulfilling desires um, that God would have for me in my life. But Paul sheds a little bit of life in Acts 12, verse 22. 
he answers this question of how could David have a heart after God's own heart? And it's quite simple. This is God speaking. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. And this is the important part, I think. He will do everything I want him to do. So David was prepared to do everything that God wanted him to do. So he was a man after God's own heart. You know, this royal psalm reminds us that people still struggle. God's people still struggle. But in his dealings with us, he is still a covenant-keeping God. If he starts something in you, he will finish it. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So how can we model ourselves on David? How can we have a similar trusting heart? Well, we call on the name of God. We trust in him. We wait patience, patiently for deliverance. And when it comes, we thank him. Psalm 35 illustrates this, I think. Psalm 35, verses 9 to 10. Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you? Deliver the poor from him who is too strong for you, the poor and needy from him who robs them. So before we go today, let's remind ourselves once again of the words of David. Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? Let's pray. Father God, who are we indeed that you have brought us this far? We certainly haven't transported ourselves from, as Lloyd James said, or Lloyd Martin, sorry, from the field of sin into the field of grace. We have been transported from our sinful land into a land of heavenly delights, looking forward to the promises that you have for us, even though we do struggle, Lord. And we thank you more than anything else that you have made it possible for us to do that through Jesus Christ, your anointed King your faithful king, who even on the night before he was crucified struggled with his role in this as well, struggled with tears of sweat and asked his father if this cup could be removed from him, if there was any other possible way of bringing a sinful people into union with a holy God, of bridging that gap between the sinful and the righteous, a gap that no man or no woman could ever leap across by any amount of works, by any amount of offerings or sacrifices. A broken and contrite heart, says David, are the sacrifices that delight you, Lord. And so this morning, with broken hearts and with thankful hearts, let us look to you, Lord, for salvation and deliverance. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.